Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. What can the average salary earner do to prepare for the triple specter of rising inflation, rising interest rates, and potentially rising taxes? What business do world improvers and do-gooders have predicting the needs of the world 50 years out while imposing their draconian plans in the here and now? And what happens to revolutionaries when it comes time to confront their own sordid pasts? I pose these questions and plenty more to Bill Bonner when I caught up with him earlier in the week. Bill is happily ensconced in Yall, Ireland, where he just welcomed this seventh Bonner grandchild into the fold. We begin our conversation by imagining what the world might look like when the next generation reaches college age. Please enjoy my conversation with Bill, up next. There's our little notification that we're being monitored. Spied on. Uh, being spied <laughs> on, yes. The powers that be are listening in. <clears throat> Mate, I'm in uh, in Houston right now. We just got oh, back from right. okay. uh, got back from a little jaunt out to Florida, <clears throat> and uh, it's it's interesting to see the the U.S. getting back to travel. The airports were absolutely packed, thronged. I would say. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Too bad. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Say goodbye to the short lines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, how is everything in, uh, I'm going to pronounce it correctly this time. It's y'all. Is that correct? It's y'all. And everything is fine in y'all. Things are getting back to normal here, too. Okay. The Irish are a little more afraid, I think, than America than Floridians. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Careful stipulation. Yeah. So they're being cautious and you have to wear your mask in public places. And I was shocked the other day when the, the, the government announced that church services may resume, but not baptisms. And it's very strange because prohibiting a baptism seems to me that for the state to be overstepping its authority, <laughs> you know, a yeah, baptism well, is what Ireland of all places yeah, it's supposed to. It's a it's a sacrament and it's a, it, it brings the child into the into the Christian world, which is very important, maybe the most important thing that happens. But nevertheless, that's what they did. So. Uh, so they're still they're afraid now that of variants, you know, variant D and variants something else. So uh, it's even though the vaccination rate is very high. Yeah, now it's it's um, so a does that mean that there's going to be a lot of uh, kids caught in limbo? I think that's the that's what goes on, right? Purgatory, uh, purgatory, right? Uh, 
Well, I, I, I'm not qualified to speak on to that subject. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, congratulations. Uh, I should say you welcomed what what number grandchild is this into the family recently? Seven, number seven. Number seven. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, that's that's quite a feat. So, congratulations. Um, I was chatting with our uh, and congratulations to Jules and Colleen, of course. Um, I was chatting with our friend and colleague, Mr. Mayor, the other day. Uh, Mr. Chris Mayer and talking about the the situation mm-hmm. up in Maryland in yeah. your sometimes home. And uh, we got to talking about the cicadas and their 17-year cycle. And, and we had a little thought experiment about um, if you were to construct a 17-year-old investment portfolio and you were only able to look at the world in whenever the cicadas look. So 2004, now they're back in 2021, and then you've got 2038. And it all seemed a little bit arbitrary until I think it was Chris uh, happened to notice that, well, actually, there is such a thing as a cicada portfolio. And usually people call it their kid's college fund. And that's about about the same amount of time. Um, And so I'm wondering, looking out, uh, did you have any grandfatherly advice for, or rather fatherly advice for uh, for Jules and Colleen about what the world might look like when, uh, well, when I, grand I didn't, child number I seven didn't, is? I, I don't give that kind of advice. I, all, I, <laughs> all I do is remind them like a, a wet blanket, you know, <laughs> that, you know, maybe the Bitcoin thing won't work out and Maybe these <laughs> meme stocks, you know, like micro strategy, maybe that's not going to be a successful investment strategy and so on. And, uh, you know, maybe these current fads. Well, actually, it came up recently. In fact, I'm writing about it, actually. As we speak, I'm writing about this subject because there was an editorial in the Financial Times on Sunday by, I think her name is Rana Forhuhar. And she was pointing out that the, the Biden administration now is finally, she says, finally going to come up with an industrial policy. And an industrial policy gives a, you know, it gives a chance for us to compete with the Chinese by looking ahead, you know, for 50 years into the future. Well, thinking about 50 years in the future, you'd have to wonder, you know, 50 years in, up in the past, they wouldn't have thought that was such a good idea. So if they were looking forward 50 years in 1970 or so, they would have had a fund. They would have devoted billions of dollars to trying to stop global cooling because that was what they were afraid of then. And as for equity, I don't think the word even came up in the present, at least not in the present form. Uh, So 50 years ago, they're not uh, 50 years from now. Whatever it is that we're developing an industrial policy to try to do will not want to be done. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, you you never know. And since I'm elaborating on this subject, it it just, you know, when you create policies, in fact, when you do anything, you're not, you can't affect the past unless you're writing history, in which case you can rewrite it any way you want. Anyway, I began to think about this whole process that any, any policy is designed to affect the one part of life that we know nothing about, which is the future. It does seem really the height of hubris to, uh, to think that we're going to be able to not only understand uh, where the world is going to be in 50 years, but also um, what, the, what the desired 
state of the world is in 50 years and then how we might affect change today in order to uh, bring that uh, bring that desired effect about without having any unintended consequences. It's it's hard enough for politicians to yes, have an unintended. Well, it's just right. a fantastic conceit to think that whatever we want right now is what the world needs years from now. It's just crazy, mm -hmm. crazy, crazy. We don't know. In fact, you know, I was thinking about in the connection between me laying down stones into concrete on a floor that I think somebody might be able to use in the future is so different from somebody creating a national strategic policy for something for other people. I mean, it's just amazing and hard enough, you know, to know what, what might happen in your own life. But imagine trying <laughs> to guess about what might happen, including technological innovations and changes that haven't happened yet. <laughs> Imagine right. if you were doing this 50 years ago, you would have included a huge subsidy to the post office, thinking that people would need to get more paper. I mean, these things are just crazy. Right. And, you know, you bring up a really important distinction there. And I think this is often overlooked when, you know, when policy wonks get together and talk about, you know, what they should do and what they ought to do. Uh, and that's the, the the very basic fact that whatever policy they they implement is going to have ripple on effects to people that they have never met, whose names they don't know, and whose fears and hopes and dreams they can have no possible way of gauging or averaging or understanding or you know pushing into their their models. And so, uh, to to give one just kind of point of contact with that, I. I watched uh, an interview recently with a, a young woman who was, um, she's an event manager down in Melbourne in Australia, where of course they've had these rolling lockdowns because of the, allegedly because of the pandemic, but it's, um, it's, it's been a real disaster, particularly in, in the capital of Victoria. And this woman was, you know, she was airing her grievances uh, in a protest that her you know, business had been closed down. It was deemed non-essential during the last year. And so she went 10 months without wages and she, you know, couldn't meet payroll. She didn't qualify for whatever the government's programs were for compensation and so forth. And here she was saying, uh, I, I think quite, quite rightly, look, why is my, why is it that my business was deemed, um, you know, non-essential? She's one of these people who does, you know, four weddings and a funeral and yet the people on the construction site next door to her, there was 200 guys up on the scaffolding, that their work was deemed essential. I mean, who is to say that uh, building some ugly sky rise is more important than what this poor woman was doing? Uh, and who's to tell her that her livelihood is non-essential? I mean, and that's just a simple you know, policy decision with regards to a lockdown for the next couple of months, never mind going 50 years out in advance. That seems, uh, you know, quite quite a, a conceit, as you say. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And, and, and when you think also that the people who are making these plans, people who are put, putting together the strategic policies and so on, are all of a certain class. You know, they're they're the people who went to the same schools. They studied the same textbooks. They have the same desires. Most of them work either for or with the government all of their lives. You know, like uh, like Joe Biden himself. He's been in, in the Senate for, since 1972. 
I mean, these are people who have no or very little contact with the real world where people like this event planner you, you mentioned. They have to earn a living. They have to take the money that they earn from selling their time and make the most of it in order to live, in order to survive, in order to give their families what they what they want to give them. And so the elite, these people who share goals, which are not at all the same goals as the average person or all these 330 million people in America, including many subcultures, subsects and groups of all sorts. You know, these people don't know what they want and don't care. What they want is what they want, and what they want is what they want right now. <laughs> it's not what they wanted 50 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> right. And it's interesting, too, that uh, 1972, you mentioned Mr. Biden uh, strolled into wherever it was, the halls of Congress, and he, he very likely would have been one of the one of those who would have made some uh, some noise about uh, a global cooling fund, which, of course, was that was the big scare uh, back in back in the early 70s. But considering that I mean, you know, it's it's unfortunate that this is the case. It's unfortunate that we have meddlers and do-gooders that, um, you know, butt their 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 nose into other people's business. It it is the case, and um, it is the case that these people, you know, fiddle the knobs of the economy as if it were a, a machine. Obviously, we know that that's not the case, but it does have real-world consequences, and. Uh, I guess the big three at the moment, which are are kind of making headlines, are the specter of or the specters of rising inflation, rising interest rates, and rising taxes. Um, now, Mister, as far as and from an investment standpoint, um, our colleague again, Chris Mayer, wrote to uh, the investors at, uh, at the Woodlock House Capital Fund and said, "Look, these are this is the story." and with a little asterisk, but they may not make uh, much difference to your long-term investment. But what do you think about the short-term on those particular things? And I, I mean, just in the next, you know, sort of um, maybe six months to a year with people who are, you know, the, their their wage uh, wages haven't gone anywhere. You know, I mean, what do these people do for to, to combat those things in the short-term or, or to prepare themselves? Yeah, it's all very hard. I mean, people typically these sorts of things where whenever a small group takes over a government with the objective, stated objective of helping the larger class of working people, the downtrodden, the poor, and so on, you can bet that those people, the poor, the downtrodden, those people are going to suffer the most. And that's exactly what happened, I was thinking, of the Soviet Union, where the uh, the uh, trots the, uh, the Bolsheviks took over took power from the Tsarist government in the name of the proletariat in the name of the working classes they set up a workers paradise and who suffered most in this working workers paradise well it was the workers of course I mean they they suffered from seventy years of backsliding in which the economy was a total mess in which you know the shelves disappeared uh, the things on the shelves disappeared. And, every, and they were told where to go, when to go. And if they didn't like it, they could get sent to a concentration camp out in Siberia. I mean, that was a disaster for the working class. And so and these people now who claim to be acting on behalf of the of the people, on behalf of these downtrodden masses, you know, they're going to they're going to cause a big disaster. You know, they they say that they are are stimulating the economy to, in order to reach full employment. 
good God, we're almost at, we're so far into full employment now that businesses can't find employees because government has been giving them stimmy checks. And they have found that for a lot of people, they earn more by not working than they get from working. I mean, it's the, the government has created this situation in which things are going to go bad and they're going to go bad primarily or mostly for the people who have the least means of defense. And those are the people who have the least assets and the least sophistication. They don't have any way to, to protect themselves. They're in, they end up going, they, they earn money by the week and they spend it by the week. And so they spend it as prices rise, they get less and less for their time and money. And it's going to be a big disaster. Yeah, it reminds me, I, f- I forget who it was that said this, but um, but there's uh, there's no man so conservative as a revolutionary who has just taken power. He's the, uh, yeah. He yeah, wants to keep we things... We see that now in Nicaragua, just by as the they way. Are. This marvelous little show playing, playing down in Nicaragua where uh, Danny Ortega was one of the original captains of the Sandinista uprising. And they, uh, I don't know if you heard the whole story, but Danny Ortega was in prison and he was in prison for robbing banks in order to fund the revolution. And Mm -hmm. while he was in prison, some other Sandinistas broke into a cocktail party going on for Christmas. It was a Christmas Eve cocktail party in Managua. And they took everybody hostage and they said, we're not going to let these hostages go until you let Danny Ortega out of prison. <laughs> so they did. They let Danny Ortega out of prison. He went into the hills with the rest of them. And they continued their fight. And a few years later, they won. They took over. Danny Ortega was was uh, was president. And then they allowed an election and they lost. And then Ortega sort of reinvented himself as a Christian socialist. And uh, he was he was elected and reelected. And then as time went on, he became more and more dictatorial. And now he's arresting, he's arresting his other, his compatriots, his, the people who freed him from prison, he's putting them in jail. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> the revolution Surprise. comes down and it feeds on its children, as they say. And in this yeah. case, it feeds on the, on the parents, too, because they're still alive. They're in their 70s. There are only two that survived from that small group that took over the cocktail party, and he's put them both in jail. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> no, no good deed, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but, so they replaced the dictator Samosa with the dictator Ortega. That's that's progress. Yeah, of of a kind. And I mean, you, you're quite right. You see that all over the world, and 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 you could have you know the most uh, the most angelic. Uh, you know, vaunted figure, hallowed by the media. I remember being in uh, in Indonesia a few years ago, and they had just had some kind of regional economic summit at which uh, Ang Yang Su Yi, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but anyway, the Myanmar um, yeah. martyr um, and or near martyr, and and she had spoken there, and all this news had come out that after having been under house arrest. Uh, as an activist for so long, and and you know, being giving all, being being given all these peace awards and all this recognition and accolades by human rights organizations around the world, once she assumed power, guess who was jailing journalists <laughs> within the first couple of <laughs> first few months? So it's a, it certainly certainly comes around. But what what's going on uh, with your project down there, uh, down in uh, in Rancho Santana, Bill? I, I haven't been there myself for a few years. I'd I'd love to get back, but it's um, it's been kind of off the off the radar. 
Well, it's way off the radar now because the State, <laughs> Department has, has, the State Department has taken it off the radar completely. You know, they're oh. advising Americans not to go. It's a dangerous country. I don't really think it's so dangerous because Ortega has just arrested everybody who posed a threat to him. And he seems <laughs> to be pretty well ensconced. So it doesn't look like, to me, it's a hot danger zone or anything. But the mm-hmm. result of it is that our... Our development, resort, hotel, restaurants, and all the things we built down there over the last 25 years, they are mostly empty. And it's a shame because they every time uh, somebody goes down there from the New York Times travel section or something, they give it its hot, their highest awards. So it's, a, it's very nice for the people who are there, but there are not many people there, I, I suspect. At least that's what I hear. Right. I haven't been there myself in more than a year. And is there, do you know anything about um, travel in and out of the place just as far as, um, you know, COVID restrictions and that kind of stuff, or is that not really on the, on the, uh, list of concerns well, at this point? Now that, now that you mentioned it, I think I have been there more recently. I was down there. Yes. That's not, I, I was, I'm not, I'm, I'm confusing things, but I was down there not too long ago and the COVID restrictions were, in place and you needed tests and but it wasn't so different from traveling around Europe as far as the COVID test you had to go to a place in Managua to get a test and then you were allowed to get on a plane out of the country so that was not so much of a problem but uh, it's just that it's really the political situation is what puts most people off. Mm. Yeah, I, I can I can imagine that would uh, that would cause a few people to to reconsider their their vacation plans. Although, uh, as I think you've said, you've never met a a long line that you wish to join. So, I guess for people who are into crisis vacationing and uh, empty beaches and no lines at the cocktail bar, Rancho Santana is probably not a bad place. To, not a bad place to hang out right now. It's a light. I was now. I'm remembering. I was there was a real delight because there weren't many people and uh, it was naturally as well uh, as as beautiful as it always is and and the, the hotels and restaurants at least in our area are still open so it was very nice mm. and so uh switching r- real quick uh bill I'm, i was thinking about um about uncrowded uh uncrowded vacations uncrowded trades uncrowded uh investments and i've got a little note down here just to make sure to check in on uh, i know we're probably only like a year or so into your uh, latest trade of the decade but do you have any uh any intuition on that it seemed if if a year was uh, a decade then it would have gone spectacularly well so far i think yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, if we could, I'd get out of it. <laughs> but uh, uh, who knows? You, the, the, the trade is long, uh, long energy and uh, short the dollar, which is simply saying just buy energy. And there's an energy ETF that we recommended. But uh, yeah, it's done very well. And uh, will it continue to do well? Well, yeah, I think it will continue to do well because I think really... I think really we are to simplify things. You know, in 1980 we were at a turning point where the the federal government, the uh, head and the Fed, the Fed itself, headed by uh, um, Paul Volcker, decided that they were going to stop inflation, and they did. And in stopping inflation, consumer price inflation, anyway, that triggered a massive switch from 
being from in the stock market and the bond market and everything and inflation markets, everything. So that stocks went up hugely, hugely over the next 20, 30, 40 years. They've been going up. Bonds, too, going up. And now I think we've reached the end of that trend. In fact, I think we reached it about a year ago. And in this inflection point, which is the exact opposite of the one in 1980, now we Mm -hmm. have a government that's determined to continue inflation, to make inflation worse. They are, they say it, they mean it, they have to do it because everything that they've done so far, all the nonsense that they've done has put so much debt into the society that now they can't survive without it. I mean, they can't stop it now. In other words, they they are in this thing, uh, this trap, which I call inflate or die. And one of my mm-hmm. one of my readers corrected to say, no, it's inflate and die and die. Yeah, <laughs> he's right about that. That's what it is. It's inflate and die, but not at the same time. You inflate. The timing first, is uh, yeah. The timing is later. important. <laughs> so. Uh, so I think all that's got, it's just to simplify. And I got this idea actually from uh, Tom Dyson just, just today. And Tom said, it's really very simple. Back in 1980, the government wanted to stop inflation. It stopped inflation. It meant you had to get out of the inflation trades into the non-inflation trades. You had to go into stocks and just sit there. He was right about that. And now we're in the opposite trend where the government wants inflation. And they want to create it, create it. I think they must create it, must continue it, must go on with this program of printing money. And so we know where that will lead to the opposite result, which is now it's time to switch out of the stock market and into or out of the the, the non-inflation trades and into the inflation trade, <laughs> which tend to be things like hard assets, commodities, energy, and so forth. So I think I think that that insight as simple as it is is probably basically right and if Mm -hmm. it's basically right then i'm good for a a decade for nine more years in the trade of the decade because i think it'll take (laughs) that long for it to play itself out right and uh to what extent if at all does uh does a at least temporarily temporarily uh recovering economy um, play play into that, uh, and by that I mean, you know, I'm just I'm here in Houston, and I'm looking around, you know, the grocery store and uh, and the malls and the airports, and and just anecdotally, um, I think obviously a lot of this is from <clears throat> uh, you know just pent up demand uh, over the last year, but it, but it does seem to be at least temporarily kind of roaring back, and that's going to be putting upward pre- price upward pressure on prices, uh, yeah. at least in the, in the short term. I think that's right. It's going to look like a boom for a little while. The yeah. government printed up some oh, governments all over the planet printed up some ten trillion dollars extra over the last fifteen months. There's the government. The U.S. government is still at it. The, the uh, European Central Bank is still at it. They're still creating more and more money every week. So this money that they're created and that they created and that was sort of sitting on the sidelines during the pandemic closures is now coming out into the marketplace and buying things. So that's why we're getting the spike up in prices. And when the uh, the, 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 the Federal Reserve governors and economists, as Krugman and so on, say, well, that's all there is to it. It's just the spike caused by the pandemic lockdowns. But that's not true. It's really much more than that. We're seeing a, a slowing, slower, slowing economy combined with the faster growing money supply 
And that over time means more inflation. And even those figures that came out last week that showed that showed employment uh, going up massively, which created the little boom let again on, on Wall Street, you know, they were mostly fraudulent. They, it wasn't true. When you look at term in terms of the hours worked, remember, an economy is the combination of skills, innovations, machinery, capital, and hours worked. And the hours worked are still lower today than they were in 2019. So the economy has not recovered. And if it is recovering, it's recovering slowly. And as it recovers, there'll be more output. But the output is not by any means what you need in order to offset the, the rise in, in money printing. I mean, the, the government has created about twice as much money in the last 18 months <laughs> as we had before the base money supply as illustrated by the Fed's uh, balance sheet. And the economy did not go up twice. It went up maybe 2%. Right. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> so what we're going to see is more inflation. And then we're going to see it probably the spike will probably moderate a little bit. And then we'll notice that it didn't doesn't go away and that it'll get bigger. And then people will start noticing that they're better off spending their money than saving it. And we'll see the velocity of money increasing. And then people overseas, too, will begin to notice that those dollars that they've got in bank accounts and mattresses and so on, that they're losing value and they'll want to get rid of those dollars. And then we're going to see some real increase in the velocity of money and some bigger inflation numbers. And when, how long that will take, I don't know. And by the way, if you've been watching the housing market, the housing market Ooh. is kind of a bridge between the capital markets, you know, Wall Street with stocks and bonds and so on, and mm. the consumer market where people are out buying soap and and and, and uh, dishwashing liquid and so on. But in this housing market, housing is going up soaring. And as a result, those costs, those are prices that people have to pay. They have to rent or they mm -hmm. have to pay mortgages or they want to buy a new house. All of that means that they need to, that you'll see those figures that in that, that basic cost of housing figuring bigger and bigger in people's budgets. And it's a, going to be a large increase in the inflation rate. Yeah, and I think that um, that brings up a, a, another kind of key point, at least in uh, in the short to medium term. And that's, uh, as you said, that you've got even in the housing market, it's always two markets because you have the owners uh, whose you know the price of their their underlying assets have appreciated. Goodness, depending on the market, something you know, 20, 25, 35 percent in some of the the hotter uh, Zoom town markets they call them now are, uh, around the U.S. Bozeman and uh, places like this. Um, and then you've got the people for whom a rising rent uh, eats into a bigger and bigger portion of their available, uh, you know, their available pie. Um, and so that kind of sows the seeds. I feel like of of um, uh, kind of civil discontent or, or socio-political discontent uh, well, between right. the so-called haves and have this, By the way, it also sows, sows the seeds of a, a very uh, nasty harvest because they uh, when housing, housing is a must, you know, people have to have housing. And when the average person cannot afford the average house, there's only one thing that can happen is the house prices have to come down because people can't get more income very readily. I mean, it takes a long time to earn more money. 
So what will, that will bring about the same sort of crash in housing prices that we had back in mm -hmm. 2007 and 2008. And that will probably precipitate a large crash generally in the asset markets. That's, of course, this is just a, in this big sweep of uh, economic history. This would be a minor thing. But but what it will will do is it will it will put the feds, especially the central bank, into high gear again, because every time there's this sort of recession, this attempt at correcting the excess, the excesses of their own policies, every time there's an attempt to correct it, well, the feds come in and try to delay, offset, and keep the ball rolling with more and more credit, more and more money printing. And so what mm -hmm. I think will happen will, will be that some of these excesses we see now, and we see them very much in the in the digital currency markets and in the cryptos and then also the meme stocks and in the housing market and in just so crazy uh things like tesla <laughs> when those things will probably call bring, bring about a crash in the markets which then will send a panic into everybody and then the Fed will react as they always do, which is with more money printing, bigger scale, and they're going to go big. They keep saying they're going to go big <laughs> with stimulus. And all it will take well, this kind of, is this kind of panic, this kind of scare to make them go big. And then when they go big, they're going to, it's they're going to be a big move towards a more inflationary cycle. I guess this uh, this is best articulated um, your this prognostication, Bill. In your uh, a column you wrote recently, I remember something like inflation followed by deflation followed by more inflation, and then uh, a technical term. I think you uh, deployed kaboom. <laughs> yeah, boom, boom. But the way I put it is boom, boom, kaboom. <laughs> so this, uh, I guess that. Uh, if we've got maybe you know one more uh, one call it a a sub cycle or a mini cycle before the before the car car turns into the car boom, um, what would you uh, what would you be doing right now if if you were um, if you were you know paying off a mortgage, earning a, a earning an hourly or or a salary, and watching prices around you uh, perhaps tick uncomfortably higher. Um, and you knew that there was an administration that may have to lean on uh, higher taxes in the in the near future. But what would you be doing? What would you advise somebody in that position to be doing right now? Well, I would want to be personally free of debt simply because it's it's always a danger to have too much debt. But in a business or in my investment portfolio, I would want to have a lot of debt, especially mm -hmm. real estate debt, because you can get it at very low rates. And it's just hard if you can get a fixed rate mortgage at, a low, at today's low rates over 20 years. My guess is that sometime in the next 20 years, fixed rate mortgage is going to be a gift, a gift from the Federal Reserve, and meaning that the interest rates will go up and it'll be very, very easy to pay it off. So that, from an investment standpoint, for for a for an average person, that seems like a good thing to think about anyway is whether you can get something real, something real, real estate, and get a long-term fixed rate mortgage on it that, that you're comfortable with now, but you'll be even more comfortable with if interest rates rise and inflation rises. So that sort of thing. And, you know, if it depends on what you, where you are in life and your, your stage of life and so on, but generally, 
I, I would want to be in things that are that are going to do well in this next phase. And this next phase is the opposite of the phase that we've been in since 1980. And this phase is a phase more like the 70s when commodities and oil and gold and real estate and farmland and things like that, things that are real, those things hold their value while a lot of other things don't. And then they don't because the economy gets really, really messed up when you have inflation rates running above 5%. And we're going to probably see inflation rates over, over 10%. And right, right now, in fact, if you calculate the rate today, it was, which is what we're talking about. We're talking about the inflation in the late 70s. We already have the same inflation rate that we had in the late 70s. It's about 13%. So things are going to be, in my opinion, things are going to be tough and you need to be prepared for tough times and most likely the kind of same sort of tough times, but tougher than we had in the 1970s. And that was a time of stagflation when output, jobs, the economy all went soft. It didn't work very well. Meanwhile, prices were rising. It put the uh, put the average person in a terrible bind and forced to, it didn't force, but it caused Paul Volcker to realize that they had to do something about it. And he, he did, he, he stopped it, but they're not going to stop it this time. They can't, they're, they're responsible for it. And they, they've said they're going to go with it. <laughs> so I, I take them at their word. I think they're going to continue the inflation. I think after a crisis, it's going to get a lot worse. And then we're going to see some higher inflation numbers and more crises. All right. Well, that's that's probably a good moment to mention that uh, uh, both yourself and uh, and Dan Denning are keeping an eye on where to put your money, given that uh, given that particular backdrop, a stagflationary backdrop. And of course, you mentioned Tom Dyson uh, a little earlier, and he's been looking into some very interesting um, opportunities for the real asset. Um, we might call it the real asset economy. Um, and that they might be places that we could hope to weather the coming storm uh, in the near future. But, well, um, I'm not sure where we'll catch up next, but uh, hopefully it won't be long until that until that happens. Well, let me know where, 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 where you're going to be, and we'll find a way to get together. Good stuff. Okay, Bill, All thanks, right. mate. It was great to talk as always, and we'll check in again soon. Okay, thank you, Joel. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.